Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Folda. I'm your podcast host. Today, we're going to dive into the topic of cattle domestication. Now, I've been asked for a long time to talk more about domestication stories in animals. We spend a lot of time talking about plant domestication and for obvious reason, it's a very exciting topic that's very intriguing. We've had good talks about domestication of chickens and dogs and cats, but what about cattle? It seems like, uh, you know, like to me that I never see a cow or near cow relative walking down the street or running through a forest. And, you know, I really have to be very honest. I was very naive to this particular topic. So we're speaking to an expert. We're speaking with Dr. Hans Lenstra. He's retired faculty of the veterinary medicine at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lenstra. No, thank you. Well, as I mentioned before, you know, we've covered so much domestication, uh, dogs, cats, chickens, all of these have been wonderful talks and fascinating topics. But cattle. Um, I really would like to know about, you know, where they come from in time and space. So what was the animal that was domesticated or what were the animals that were domesticated by humans to really turn into what we know as modern day cattle? Well, the, the wild ancestor of cattle was a so-called aurochs, which became extinct not so very long ago. They shot the last cow in Poland in 16, 1627. So we have skeletons, they are on cave paintings, and there are a couple of medieval pictures. So we know it was a very large animal, so I think as large as a bison, and they were also very dangerous. Uh, there was a quip in the Middle Ages, if during hunting you are wounded by a wild boar, ask for a doctor. If you are wounded by an aurochs, ask for a priest. Wow. An aurochs. It sounds like a like a Dr. Seuss creature. I, I've never heard of this before. So so an aurochs, could you tell us more about what it was like? You know, what what do the skeletal remains tell us and what else do we know about its natural history? Uh, well, not so very much if the animal has been died out with not too many descriptions. One of the most extensive descriptions of behavior uh, is uh, from Julius Caesar, Caesar the, the, the um, emperor from Roma. We uh, uh, give some remarks in the uh, De Bello Gallico. Uh, so there is some, some speculations, but we know from some accounts it was a, not a an, uh, quiet uh, kind of animals like sheep and uh, goats. <laughs> well, where was the center of the aurochs range? Like, where did this thing come from? Well, uh, in fact, there uh, are two centers of origin. 
for the two major kinds of cattle. The first cattle come from the Middle East, the Fertile Crescent. There's the east of present-day Turkey, northern parts of Iran, Iraq. Uh, and then uh, you have the Zebu, the humped cattle. That's the main kind of cattle in the tropical areas of Asia, Africa, America and also Australia. Uh, and it was domesticated a little bit later near the Indus Valley, so in the present-day Pakistan and India. Uh, but we now also believe that when the domestic cattle came to Europe, and Africa and Asia, it spread around, there have been incidental crossings with local aurochs, uh, because it was Stone Age, so you did not have any barbed wire. And then contact with wild animals is difficult to prevent. So there has been some influence of the aurochs from Europe, Africa, also southeast of China, on the genomes of the present-day cattle from the same region. This is really fascinating stuff. So why were they domesticated by humans? Were they work animals or was it for meat, milk? Like why, why did humans first welcome them and take them in? Uh, we do not know exactly. It makes sense that they were soon eaten. They were used uh, for their meat and their hides. Traction for the plow also became later. But the most important selection when they were domesticated was of course for docility because there was no way you can keep those very large and aggressive animals. And uh, so they selected the docile animals and that probably explains the quite immediate uh, size reduction. The early Neolithic cattle were much smaller than the wild ancestors, the, the aurochs. When in time did this happen? Yeah, about 8,000 years ago. So then they had already domesticated uh, sheep and goat, uh, more yeah, easy animals. Uh, at about the same time, they also domesticated the pigs. Okay, and about how many years ago was that? 8,000. About 8,000 years ago, yeah. they were domesticating cattle. And so the, the main traits were for docility, but were there other traits as well that uh, early domestication may have found useful? Uh, uh, I think the selection on the desirable traits became later, in fact, quite recently. Uh, so they, uh, the most important things, especially when they uh, came to Europe and uh, uh, yeah, America, Africa, they should adapt to the local conditions. And that, that happens, of course, automatically if you just uh, go on with the surviving animals. When we look at the, the, at the Americas, what's happening in, throughout the North and South American continent, is there any evidence of indigenous people domesticating the similar animals here? Uh, there were, were no uh, wild cattle living in America. They domesticated the llama, of course, in, in South America, but uh, we, we pretty well know, we're pretty sure that there was no domestication of cattle-like animals in, uh, uh, in America. Uh, they might have tried to domesticate the bison, but, uh, well, those are uh, quite dangerous animals, and uh, it, apparently it did not happen. Yeah, that was what I was thinking, that, you know, we have some of those larger 
uh, cattle-like organisms here. And I just was curious if those were ever considered for that. So how did cattle get to the New World? Uh, oh, in, in different ways. Uh, uh, immediately after 1492, when uh, Columbus discovered America, Spain started to colonize it, and almost every ship that went from Spain to the West brought a few cattle. And those became the ancestors of the, the local criollos you find in Mexico and uh, Middle America and South America. But then in the North, the uh, English, Dutch, and French uh, settlers brought their own cattle. Uh, that also started in the 16th century, but in the 19th century, uh, they started to import the first breeds, which has been developed in Europe since the 18th century. And, uh, then they started to serious uh, modern breeding with herd books and breeding objectives. So they developed a quite a number of useful breeds. They were bought by the Americans. The most important, of course, the black and white Dutch cattle, which became the, the Holstein, and also several beef breeds. And the most important one now is the black Angus, originally a Scottish breed, and that's the cattle of the Hamburger. And as a kind of final development, at the end of the 19th century, Brazil bought uh, an, uh, on a massive scale zebus in India, because they tolerate a lot better the hot climate in Brazil. In Brazil, the zebus were exported to other American countries with a similar climate, including the southern part of the United States. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, cattle in the state where I am. We're down in Florida, and many people are surprised to learn that we are one of the largest cattle-producing states because there's so much grazing land and uh, year-round grazing. And there's a lot of efforts in breeding for beef cattle uh, using some of these heat-tolerant varieties of things like, you know, um, uh, Brahmas and breeding them against Angus to make Brangus, uh, along with a lot of the uh, cattle that the Seminole Indians, uh, the native people here in Florida, what they were raising. So a lot of very interesting radiation and, and continued domestication here. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Hans Lenstra. He's a retired faculty member at Utrecht University in the veterinary medicine area. Uh, he still is very active and talking to us today about cattle domestication and how that happened. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. In trying times, it's all hands on deck to fight the scourge of misinformation. Journalist Cameron English and scientist Kevin Folta dissect critical stories in the news on the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast. How real are the COVID-19 therapies? Who can you trust for good information? What's happening now in the world of genetic engineering? These topics and more are discussed every week on the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast over on the Genetic Literacy Project website and on Apple Podcasts. It's informative, entertaining, 
and guaranteed to help you become more conversant in the current issues in agriculture, medicine, and technology. That's Science Facts and Fallacies with Cameron English and Kevin Fulta. Every Wednesday via the Genetic Literacy Project. And now, back to this week's podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Hans Lenstra. He's a retired faculty member from the veterinary medicine faculty at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. And we're talking about cattle domestication and something that I don't know very much about. So when we look around around the world, are there um, other specific characters that really have defined what's present in, say, Africa or India or, you know, like these more ancient domesticates? Are there specific traits that really are local to those areas? Well, the, the, the best producing cattle all come from uh, Europe, the, uh, the beef as well as the, the deer animals. Uh, and the, the main virtue of the uh, cattle, the, the original cattle from Africa and Asia, are the adaptations to uh, what we call uh, extensive management. You can, can just leave them on the meadows and will see after themselves and you can uh, use them for slaughtering or for sometimes also for milking. Milking is a specialty of the temperate regions from Europe and America where you have a lot of meadows and a lot of uh, grass and of course rain to keep the, the grass green. Uh, in the so let's say the more primitive cattle husbandry is mostly beef cattle, and a very often on small scale, but adapted to a local economy and local uh, climate. What about places like India, where uh, cattle have very strong uh, cultural and religious sim- symbolism? Are there any special adaptations that have been selected there? Uh, I. Th- not special functional adaptation, but you are right that everywhere cattle has since ever been more than sheep and pigs and goats a role in tradition. Maybe because of their, their powerful appearance, eh? they have some charisma. So uh, they very often they play a role in uh, religious uh, uh, ceremonies uh, and in all kinds of games. Uh, in Northern games, very often quite uh, cruel games like the, the fighting cattle in uh, the, the, the cattle fighting in, in the Spain there's a whole list of different, different games they perform at cattle all around the world yeah I guess that's true they have running of the bulls and you know bull fights that kind of thing right so if we look at the current efforts that are being used to better understand cattle lineages say at the genome level What's currently being done in terms of sequencing or understanding the genetic makeup of the cattle? Yeah, well, there's an, an, an quite an uh, uh, intense effort. Uh, in, in general, also in human genetics, things are easy if there's an, uh, a direct relation between one gene and one trait. And that's often the case in if you have a genetic disease. Uh, so uh, there's a huge progress in human genetics uh, where they know the mutations that makes uh, that people uh, uh, yeah, uh, give them a disease and the same also happened in, in cattle 
other traits controlled by one genus often the code color. Uh, but what I uh, be really interested in is production. And that is a difficult trait because it depends on many different interacting genes. And uh, uh, on, that on that level, the progress has not been as, as, as fast. Same in human genetics. If you want to have the genetic background of uh, schizophrenia or diabetes, diabetes it's just very difficult. Uh, now they have now a new trick that they uh, that is called genomic selection. They sequence the whole genome of uh, several sires and let for every of the three billion nucleotide positions calculate uh, with what is a contribution to the uh, performance. And uh, it's a huge calculation, but then you can select those pools which have the best productions very often without knowing why. It's just the outcome of a huge calculation, but it works. So we can now better and better select those pools which in that generation gives them cows with a very high milk production or have uh, very superior uh, meat quality of whatever you want to select for it. Well, that's very interesting because I, I seem to remember, cause, well, right now everybody uses genomic selection in just about any breeding program, but were cattle really one of the first good examples of where genomic selection was effective? Yeah, I think so, because it's not, not very practical in, uh, in many other uh, species. You, 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 uh, if you want to calculate the breeding value, you need uh, to calibrate it. And that's just by sequencing, uh, let's say, 500 cattle. Uh, I don't know exactly uh, how they do it. But, and, but then you calibrate the relation between nucleotide positions and the breeding value. And after a couple of years, you have to repeat it. The calibration is not very stable. And uh, you cannot do it for small breeds where you have only uh, uh, two, three hundred animals, which is economically not very important and not worth the effort. And I wonder if it will, it might be done for, let's say, for the very productive sheep breeds like the Merino, uh, maybe for the Angus, for the Charolais and the Limousin, but not for all breeds. Uh, because it's just not practical and uh, the effort is uh, yeah, is too much and uh, you, you don't have the, the way to calibrate your selection. Well, when you look across modern selections, across you know the diversity of, of, of the selections, are there any really interesting surprises that have come up as they've begun to understand gene and trade associations? Uh, well... Um, not that I know of, but I think they will, uh, at the end, discover also why some gene variants, uh, other than just a statistical relation, why uh, and what is the mechanism, why those gene variants control on trade. Uh, what might be a little bit surprising, uh, you would expect that the Holsteins, which have since ever been under a very intense selection, with only a few top sires, so bulls uh, where you, from which we know that their calves have a very good day of production, 
well, then you expect that the uh, diversity will go down drastically. And that, that's not what we observe. The, in fact, the diversity, if you look, just look in the DNA at the number of variants, the variability of the genome, is of the whole thing not so very bad. And uh, even better than uh, French or Swiss or English breeds, which are uh, more bred in a natural way. That's really surprising because you'd think that with all of the human intervention in you know, cattle breeding, which now is going back some time, that they would be really narrow. And, and, but there's a lot of artificial insemination that happens, right? Where um, one male bull, well, all, mul- all bulls are males, I guess, where a bull is maybe siring thousands of, of offspring and maybe even millions of great-great-grandchildren. So how, how, how much has that affected diversity? Well, the, the artificial insemination is, is what they do already for a long time, and that is the tool that they are able to use only in a few top sires, an animal that lives somewhere in the Netherlands or somewhere in America, and his semen is exported to all countries in the world, and he is fathering calves everywhere. They already started this before the Second World War. It's a, a, quite an old trick. Yeah. And they now might even do now cloning. You have a successful cow, and you make thousands of replicas of the cow. Yeah, I know that's been a really important thing in the dairy industry. And uh, what, what's the story of the Belgian blue? Oh, yeah, that, that's the whole, whole discussion. The Belgian blue <laughs> is, is, in fact, a sick animal. It has is homozygous for an, a nasty mutation, uh, and uh, which uh, for from a gene called myostatin, and myostatin is a gene that uh, that uh, controls the growth of muscles, and uh, then in such a way that if the, it it prevents that the muscles becomes too big and too large. Uh, you have the mutation also in mice, which are the very thick mice in dogs. And uh, it has not been confirmed. There was a suspect on a few babies that uh, also did not look like, uh, yeah, more or less like monsters, that they uh, had the mutations. But the mutation makes profit because if you have a lot of muscle, you have a lot of meat. And the animals... Well, we don't know exactly, but they don't mind. They don't mind too much, except if there's a delivery. The, the baby calf is too large for delivery, so they have to do a cesarean. So the whole discussion that's not nice for the animal. So uh, uh, ethical for a couple of bucks to let the cow suffer too much. So other people say, no, well, a normal delivery is also not, not very nice. It doesn't make too much difference. And the animals do not complain. Okay, so uh, they, I don't know what will happen with animals, but it's a discussion. And maybe they try to, may try to breed uh, cows with and, uh, more, but will deliver more easily. Yeah, or there, or maybe a weaker allele, you know, of of the myostatin. Uh, so so it's actually a, a mutation in myostatin, which that's that stops the 
breakdown of muscle or limits the size somehow so that they just get, they build more and more muscle and they just yeah. turn into giant, uh, giant muscle yeah. blobs like, uh, as a cow. Yeah. So, but people have talked about doing this kind of thing with gene editing. Yeah. And they've already done the uh, hornless cattle, which we've discussed on this, on the podcast for a long time now. Uh, what are some of the other interesting applications of gene editing that may come in cattle? Yeah, well, the nice thing of, of, of gene editing, the, the CRISPR-Cas system, that you can do is, uh, well, it's, it's practical to to uh, prove the DNA and to, uh, to to correct mistakes or to uh, make mutations that confer a trait. And they applied it on the horn development. I am a little bit skeptical because the mutation has been around in normal cattle for a very long time. We know because there are skulls without horns from 2,000 years old. Uh, for the farmer, it is very favorable not to have horns. He does not have to remove them. And if you do not remove them, the horns will hurt the farmer and uh, hurt the other animals. So they, do, uh, do the, the, they remove the horns yeah, with force. But uh, if uh, the reason I'm skeptical is that I, if it is on a favorable trait, why have are there still cattle surviving with horns? There are enough animals without horns to start the breeding. It happens with the Angus and in a few breeds, but not in all breeds. It did not happen in most breeds. So I suspect that the the if you take the animals without horns, that the mutation has also other effects. And if you select animals which have a, has a lot of meat and a lot of milk, you will not select the individuals without horns. And it's called in a special term, pliotropic. The gene has more effects. It removes the horns, but it might also decrease the milk and the the, the meat production. That's why I suspect on base of observation that they have for all breeds opportunity to dehorn animals genetically by just selecting the animals and apparently they did not do it. Yeah, well they did the, uh, the black Angus mutation I think in Holsteins and, uh, and apparently they, you know, it seemed to work fine in terms of the uh, the cattle not growing horns, but uh, I didn't remember any reports of collateral effects at the macro level. They found lots of changes at the level of the genome where there were unanticipated results that they were able to identify. But apparently that whole story because of regulation uh, is not going forward anywhere at this time. And are you aware of any other efforts to engineer cattle? No, I, I know it is not my specialty. I am not an agricultural uh, uh, specialist. I know it is progressing very fast. Um, they do still do it uh, on the basis of phenotypes. For instance, they adapt the morphology of the udder to the milking machines. Uh, and that that's better. That can be done all day of breeding. And uh, uh, what is very difficult to predict is the public attitude. In America, they are quite tolerant, also with uh, transgenic uh, crops. In Europe, it is for, still completely forbidden. 
uh, they don't like it. Uh, I see perspectives if you know, for instance, uh, which uh, uh, mutations control the production and which mutations control the adaptations. You can make a whole exercise uh, more productive and you will decrease the impact on the environment because you need less animals, uh, a few, few animals and uh, less feed, etc. to uh, accomplish the same production. Yeah, but of course, uh, you cannot focus only on the very highly productive animals. You should never and never throw away the good old cattle that are, that are bred in the normal way and which are part of our tradition. Well, that's a really good point. Um, are there cattle gene banks or, or places where they have uh, repositories of the original cows of given varieties? Oh, sure, yeah. In, in, in the Netherlands and several other countries, we have stolen a lot of semen. So we can, if you want, rebreed uh, uh, old cattle. It's not as easy with, with plants. With plants, you just you put the seeds in, an, uh, in a glass, uh, in, in, a, in a vial. In, uh, for the semen, you have to store at uh, minus 80. That's right. I, I, I remember hearing about this years ago, and just the conversation with you has really sparked it, is... Uh, that there, that the diversity has been cataloged, and that so many uh, they call them straws, right? You you get a straw out of the minus eighty, which contains it's a small thin vial that contains the semen for artificial insemination. And what was really interesting about this, you'd mentioned another point that the number of cattle have gone down, even though production has gone up because of those efficiencies. And do you have a, a gauge, or could you tell us a little bit about? You know how much more efficient they've gotten. Uh, well, I don't know exactly. That, that's a trait of what they will quantitative geneticists, uh, and that's not my area. But I heard have heard figures about one percent uh, uh, increase in efficiency per year. Okay, so that's it's still that's pretty good when you think yeah. about it, because over the course of decades, uh, we start to see those increases. I've seen uh, Alison Van Eenenem give talks where she shows maybe around World War II, you had many, many more cattle, but lower production. And so we've been able to, through breeding and genetic improvement, make these cows that are much more productive, at least in dairy production, which is, which is really exciting. Well, Dr. Hans Lenstra, you really have helped me understand a lot about an area that I really was very much in the dark. And even though I'm on committees of students who are studying cattle breeding, I never knew much about their origins and domestication. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. As always, write a review on iTunes. You know the drill. Talk to friends. Share the message of cool stories about domestication of animals. Uh, go back and visit some of the other ones we've done with Gregor Larson and other experts in the area of domestication. Uh, visit us on Patreon if you can make a small donation at helps me pay a producer and helps us advertise the podcast to get wider reach. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Folta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. 
comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.